Okay. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts. So, guys. Yeah? Something strange happened the other night. Mm-hmm. I was going back through some of our old episodes because I wanted to see if they were fit for putting on the radio. Mm-hmm. And I pressed play on what I thought was a Reasonable Doubts file, and here's what I heard instead. It's kind of creepy. Oh my god. Is that whale noises? Jesus. Kind of spooky, huh? Wait, no, that sounds like Dave. Yeah. <laughs> that weak kid is sore throat? It is Dave. It's just one of our files that uh, somehow it uploaded to my player and started playing slow. Somehow? But, oh, I don't think it's just a coincidence. Nice. Wow. <laughs> that sounds like demonic death music. I know. That's the joy of it. Welcome to the Reasonable Doubt Halloween Special. Welcome to a very special and spooky edition of Reasonable Doubts. My name is Dave Wolfman Fletcher. In the studio with me is Jeremy Howlin'Bean. Yellow. And I should have said hello. Much better. And Luke Boo Galen. I want to suck <laughs> your blood. <laughs> oh, you suck just fine, Luke. <laughs> oh, I suck big time. Is that what you're saying? Is anybody actually dressing up for Halloween or have any Halloween parties or anything? Uh, I have children to take out trick-or-treating. Sweet. Um, I don't know if I'll do... Oh, you know what? There's um, this Thursday night, the world record zombie walk is going to be um, done in Grand Rapids downtown. And I'm going there with the uh, the whole family, dressing up as a zombie and walking through downtown with oh, thousands cool. of other people. So Isn't I every guess. day in downtown Grand Rapids a zombie walk? <laughs> yes. It's it's a kind of post-apocalyptic world if you go downtown Grand Rapids after 7 p.m. Are you going to do the Michael Jackson moves with the hands with the thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh they'll be thriller. But for people who hear us on the radio, um, what time will that be? Uh, I believe people are gathering at Rosa Park Circle at 8 p.m. 8 p.m., so mm-hmm. for the Leave World Record Zombie Walk. Yes. Just your body, and The please. Discovery Channel is going to be there filming it. So They're going to have concession stands selling brains and that sort of thing? <laughs> we can only hope. I uh, just want the frontal lobe on mine. <laughs> Could you put some extra myelination on those nerves? <laughs> how, how about you, Luke? Any, any Halloween plans? I'm going to um, hand out candy, and my costume will be – see if you can guess what I'm going to be. I'm going to wear a sweater with leather patches on the – or a tweed jacket with leather patches, and I'm going to have glasses and disheveled hair. And clothes that don't match. Wow. Mm. No social skills. But a, a lot professor? of professor? Fa- a professor. Y- Jeremy? I oh. wanted to do a um, couple's Halloween costume mm-hmm. where I would go as a priest because that's very easy. Black shirt, yeah. white collar. Right. And Jen would go as a pregnant nun. Nice. Did she go as a schoolgirl? Um, yeah, but that's at the private after party for just the two of us. Oh, okay. Good Lord. Wow. I, I don't think anything can get more terrifying than what we've already hit. So let's take a look at something less scary than Jeremy's sex life, which is demon possession. I don't see a distinction there, but okay. 
Um, <clears throat> demon possession. So we've seen a lot of uh, a rash of this whole sort of demon possession things with all the specials. I'm sure you guys have seen these on TV with the mm-hmm. people that go into these charismatic uh, congregations and oh, sure. do deliverance ministries. There's, even, near, a, near, there's near, even a guy near, named Barb Larson near, that has like a show that he goes around and casts out demons on TV and such. So it's like the ghost hunters, except rather than hunting ghosts, they're they're taking down demons. Yes. Wow. Uh, and they don't have like the, the zapping rays and backpacks. Right. And don't cross the streams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, there's actually been an upsurge of interest in this. Like we we did an episode on glossolalia and tongue speaking a while back, and mm-hmm. this is a very similar thing because they tend to co-occur. And there's been a lot of interest in this, in the upswing of interest in Pentecostalism, and uh, you know churches like Sarah Palin's that does that, that handle things like um, laying on of hands and tongue speaking, and so demonic possession fits into that whole religious worldview too, because you view the world as being you know, all these demons instead of saying that there's a negative thing going on in your life, it's a demon. Right. Right. So it takes the responsibility out of the hands of the people who are doing it and puts it firmly within the. Uh, Twisted hooks of various demons and unseen evil forces. You know, this is the the in psychology. There's always been a categories of diagnoses for things like this because it wasn't invented recently. The um, demonic possession has occurred worldwide in different, you know, in all kinds of different religions and folk traditions, witch doctors mm-hmm. and such that they cast out evil things. So this is not something mm-hmm. that's been invented by the Judeo-Christian tradition. How much of this is um, just? people misinterpreting mental illness in a time before we knew anything about psychology. People were epileptic and uh, say like, uh, for example, in First Samuel with King Saul who was visited by fits of madness and God, it was thought to be an evil spirit that worked on him, that sort of thing. Yeah, or the Gerasene demon is the classic. Jesus cast out the Gerasene demon and put it into the pig herd. Everyone's heard of that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, And if you look at those symptoms, they're Oh, you know, almost right across the board, they look like uh, epileptic, foaming at the mouth, and and I'm sure that in pre-scientific times, that it would have been very logical interpretation that if somebody starts to get a vacant look in their eye or hits the ground and goes into seizures or talks in a, a funny voice, that what other you know, that's right. a very common uh, sensible attribution, and that is that it must be uh, another spirit into the body because why? Well, how else yeah. could I explain you acting weird? Even something like Tourette's <clears throat> syndrome would be very easily explained by demon possession. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So the um, the, the current the, they don't call it possession now in the psychological parlance. They call it dissociative trance disorder. So uh, you've probably heard of other dissociative dis, uh, disorders like amnesia, where you lose memory, or fugue mm-hmm. state, where you'll you know leave town and then wake up in another town a couple days later. And then uh, the extreme end would be a dissociative identity disorder, which was called multiple personality where there's mm-hmm. a split and a schism sure. and you have separate personalities. But dissociative trance basically is during a confined period, the person loses their memory or access to their consciousness and their body goes on, you know, talking and, and that uh, the person often reports that they, um, you know, don't remember what happened during that time period, but they might engage in violent behavior or speak in a different type of voice. And that that's confined, though, to a discrete period of time. So in the in the religious tradition, you know, that that's where the witch doctor and the shaman come in as they try to cast that demon out of you and bring you back to your normal self. Uh, so this is something that occurs world, worldwide in many different religious traditions. Right. It just has a whole lore in the Bible now in the Christian tradition. Sure. So we understand what what's causing a lot of this stuff that appears like demon possession uh, much better now than they did before. But how do you explain 
when casting out demons works. Well, that's uh, just like we talked about in Glossolalia, that, that the person often has been raised within this religious worldview where they have language to describe how they should act and behave. They've seen other people do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Jeremy was saying during our Glossolalia episode that isn't it coincidental or kind of funny that the, these things tend to cluster in specific subcultures of religion, that that is tongue-speaking and, and demonic possession appear together, and they appeared in Pentecostal religions. Mm-hmm. In my Lutheran church, you know, there wasn't a lot of people throwing themselves on the floor. Yeah, the Christian Reformed Church didn't have any of that. We did have someone have a seizure in, in church one day. We thought but, it was uh, a seizure. Yes, we thought it was a seizure. Uh, yeah, so there's a whole thing in, in psychology called role theory, which basically says, as the name suggests, that you search your social context. If there's, if you feel, psych- there's a combination of a psychological state where if you feel your life isn't going somewhere or you have, you know, psychological problems that uh, you um, combine with a context of, I'm in a church, it's very, you know, high high power, high, uh, high octane, there's music, people dancing around, and there's a suggestion that, demons are out there, they can explain your problems, mm-hmm. your anxiety, whatever, that that uh, the person goes with the flow, that many of these people are suggestible in the same way that glossolalics might, uh, you know, speak in tongues, these people might say, oh, yeah, I do feel funny, and then you're able to produce the state yourself by going along with the script. Uh, the leader then will say, I'm looking for demons in the audience, goes around, and uh, if you see these people, they're very almost like stage hypnotists, the, mm-hmm. the ministers that do the deliverance, they go around, they're able to pick out very suggestible people. Often these people have problems in their lives that we would say are, you know, depression, anxiety, whatever. That's their solution. And so they, who wouldn't want to then, you know, have this experience where the, there's a very cathartic laying on of hands and, and the person, you know, might scream and talk funny and then it's it's over. And then they're healed. Then they're healed. <clears throat> Drawing the analogy to hypnosis, uh, do these people know that they're putting on an act? Well, in the same way of hypnosis, that the suggest it's they're both suggestibility states, and the person uh, it's not that they're lying or making it up in many cases. It's that just the same way that you could dissociate and go on automatic pilot mm-hmm. in a non-traumatic situation. You can you probably had this experience where you've been driving for ten minutes and don't know what happened. Sure. You no, know, mm-hmm. now if I would ask you what happened, you if you think you might be able to dredge up, yeah, you have a vague recollection of what went on. It's probably a similar analogy to these people where they often report that they're up looking at their body from a you know out of body type thing. But in essence, their body might just go on automatic pilot, and part of their psyche is just following along with the script. That is, mm-hmm. I know what to do when you when you're possessed by an evil demon. You talk in a guttural voice. You thrash around. People hold you down. It's so very exorcisty. <clears throat> yeah, it's, puking it's, up pea soup and and whatnot. Yeah, and, and there's a spe- vomiting. Yeah, there's a whole spate of of possessions after the exorcist came out because that was I, one of the things that publicized. That. Sure, absolutely. So there's clear evidence that there's it's a social contagion, almost like a hysteria mm. type thing. A meme. Now, now the 360 head rotation, though. Yeah, how do you explain mm. that, Luke, in the floating bed? <laughs> explain <laughs> I it. That was in the movie too. Well, that's the thing is that you see all these things, and they say uh, all these reports. Oh, he had superhuman strength, or there was marks on his body, like in The Exorcist. You know that she's trying yeah. to get out, but none of these you know you never see anything with people levitating and the, right. it's it's basically just people you know flipping out and and the the, the range of normal abilities is all there you know, right if if testosterone gets pumping or and adrenaline yeah all sorts of things can happen yeah and i've seen i have videos where they have these whole they it's funny cuz they pair together what we you and i would it's not that they deny that there's medical or psychological problems but then mm-hmm. then they add demon on top of it sure. so they'll say yes you have panic attacks but it's an anxiety demon that's bothering you or yes you have an alcohol problem, but it's an alcohol demon. Right, so right. So it's, it's clearly that they're using that as an, as an explanation, a name 
to put on top of psychological problems that you know Occam's razor be damned. Let's yeah. just add stuff on. Uh, yeah. Now, now that's an interesting question too. Is I mean, is that just wayward biblical literalism? Because I've I've noticed that too. I should I should defend Christian psychologists to some degree as I uh, as when I went to college I went to a Christian college and I took courses uh, taught by Christian professors I was very happy to see that my professors were very critical of this movement called Christian psychology where people would uh, you know in a therapeutic situation if somebody was suffering from depression or something they would say well it must be a result of sin in your life because mm -hmm. one of the fruits of the spirit is joy and you look at that and you think the only way that they could really believe something like that is if they're just taking the the biblical text so literally that they have to layer it on top of whatever psychological diagnosis is going on there and so I, I talked to some people who were, more, who were more sympathetic to that view, and I asked them, what do you do with all this stuff in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament where things like palsy even are explained mm -hmm. as causes of, of demons? I mean, how do, you, how do you have a clinical attitude on, on one side and then still – and then deal with that information? And it, the answers I got were a lot like what you suggested there. Well, yes – there is a physical manifestation of it, and we can treat that. But then, on top of it, you know, our our battle is not against flesh and blood; it's against powers and principalities of darkness, and and that's why we care. The about demon world comes in, not just physical and mental health, but also spiritual health as well, right? Well, that whole supernatural to physical causation thing needs yeah. to be thought out a little yeah, bit more. It's, it's like trying to nail Jello to the wall. And that's the really – that's one of the dangerous things there. If somebody wants to have their religious worldview and then suggest that they're you know, spirits and ghosts, you know, typically that's harmless. And most responsible Christian psychologists would say take medication, get some therapy. Sure. But if you suggest – if you set up this thing where part of it is uh, a, you're, you're open to sin in your life and it's the work of the devil, it really uh, does a number on these people's heads because then they're wondering what did I do to bring this on or you know, it, mm. it, it fosters this externalization of responsibility where mm -hmm. you say uh, – or you feel guilty internally but then you say why is God doing this to me and it just adds a whole – I mean like you said, Occam's razor – it just adds a whole layer of non-parsimonious explanations on it. Right, Instead right. of just saying it's a physical thing, you need to get treatment, talk about your problems, they add this whole demon-haunted world. And it's got to be so yeah. damaging psychologically <clears throat> to say, you know, what have I done to allow these demons in? Why, sure. why is God letting this happen to me? And, and down it goes. I, I do think in some way it must feed back into the theology again because mm – -hmm. You've set up a situation where if, if you're going to entertain these phenomena as being supernatural in nature, well, then other questions are going to come up. So if the person is a Christian mm -hmm. and yet they could be possessed by demons, they need to explain, well, are they really saved? Can they lose their salvation? Right. Questions of their own – of their own personal status with God is going to come into question, mm -hmm. and and of course. you would think you would think some of that would go back into trying to craft the theology as well. Yeah, well, that's and and also it provides, like we talked about with tongue speaking, a very a bridge burning type experience. If you've just thrown yourself on the floor and talked in a guttural voice, there's no turning back. You're into that mm -hmm. theology. You're into that worldview. You can't then say, "Oh, I, it wasn't real," or "I must have done this to myself." It it it's a supportive 
thing of that mm-hmm. snowballs your ideology because there's demons out there. How do you know? Because it happened to me. I was knocked on my butt and the guy right. cast it out. And so it it's actually you, reinforces yeah. of your worldview just like tongue speaking does. The Pentecostal churches are growing like wildfire and it's a very emotional rather than a rational, you know, worship service. It's it's very appealing because it's you're up there dancing in the aisles and singing things, and it provides concrete answers. There's demons. And in the third world country, well, you guys have probably seen the, the Palin video with the witch doctor guy from Africa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something that was a little disturbing because they laid hands on Sarah Palin when she was you know, governor and she back at her church. And one of the guys there was a visiting minister from Africa, I think it was in Nigeria, and that he uh, has been was known in Africa to have cast out like witches from his village. Apparently, they yeah, had he, problems with crime, and then he gained he, great fame by uh, taking down witches. She and turned me into a newt. <clears throat> that's a big problem, though, in Africa is that there uh, that there's a lot of these problems in the villages are attributed to witches, and there's you could see stories of this too, where little kids are basically scapegoated. They, yeah. th- that they're if they if you look funny, especially or if the you elderly have too, often yeah. removing. Uh, um, people who are dependent on their families. It's just like Massachusetts, care. you know, Salem, Massachusetts I was gonna say, all over to, again. Just look at, uh, look at the crucible, um, yeah. the, the play, not the actual crucible. Yeah, you have, a, you have a, a problems in a village or a rural area, and it turns into a social phenomenon where you need a scapegoat. Here's, right. the, here's the village midwife who looks a little weird with warts, mm-hmm. or here's the crazy-looking kid, and you place all the problems on them. That's the problem with the, the whole Pentecostal thing in these rural cultures is that Pentecostal Christianity is taken off in like Latin America and Africa. The whole demonic thing and witchcraft, it plays into their folk beliefs, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it doesn't exactly promote a lot of critical thinking about, you know, well, hold on, how do we know that there's a witch or anything like that? Well, it's just like any sort of conspiracy theory, really. The hard thing about conspiracy theories from a critical thinking standpoint is that they just, they can adapt any sort of information. Any state of the world can be fit into the conspiracy frame. So if there's any sort of evidence, that counts towards the conspiracy. If there's lack of evidence, well, that counts towards right. the it's conspiracy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if we're talking demons here, then you could give a real thorough debunking, explain everything that's going on, and, and try to bring some clarity to the matter. But you could just be an agent of Satan. Yeah, if you talk to right. people like, well, if, if God is smiting evildoers— why doesn't he just go to like a free thought meeting and have everybody be possessed by demons? And they answer that with, well, maybe they are. Or, well, maybe right. he does it. To That's why they're there. They or, or it's the holiest people that Satan yeah. needs to affect right. the most. Exactly. That Sa- whole Satan thing. knows that we're going to hell, so he doesn't bother exactly. with us. He's going to yeah. take a good person. And th- so there's like, there's That's no way out of That's why my pastor that. had sex with uh, <laughs> teenagers from the youth group and or that sort of thing. Or male prostitutes. Yeah. Because yeah. they were righteous and Satan needed to. Right, right. And and the thing that really drives me crazy is that pop culture kowtows to this mentality all the time. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen a a movie, a work of fiction where it turns out, you know, someone's possessed and yada, 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 all this X-Files crap. And X-Files, by the way, infuriates me as a skeptic because that's the worst skepticism I've ever seen. Um, Julian Anderson. Yeah. Um, she is hot. Yeah. She's from Grand Rapids. Just like me. Um, but uh, I have never seen one of these movies where it turns out that, no, the demon possession is fake or it's fraud. Well, uh, the boring. Exorcism of Emily Rose. Yeah. I had high hopes for this movie. Um, I, I don't know why, but at some point I did because they, you know, they show it from different perspectives. They show how you know, it was just a medical condition or it was demon possession. But at the end, you're left with this whole – 
But was it? Yeah, and they make the scientist, the the scientist, uh, the lawyer, whoever mm-hmm. was it, yeah, Laura the, the skeptic, or, yeah, Laura Linney, the skeptic. They make that look out to be the obtuse one exactly. who refuses to open to. And all you the have Tom Wilkinson, who I love as the as the priest, saying, you know, no, this is this is real. Okay, you have to accept that. Why are you being so stubborn? This is here. It's out there. It's a real force. And yet, you're right. It makes for much more interesting fiction to uh, have demons. Well, we're going to just have to accept the fact that uh, skepticism is never going to be as sexy as the supernatural. Even with people like uh... – OK. I actually can't think of any sexy skeptics. Yep. Oh, Austin Dacey. Even with Austin Dacey out there. You know what? I'm officially barring all talk of Austin Dacey or his sex appeal from the podcast. No more. All right. Fine. Then we got no one. Andrian. Oh. Yeah. Come and visit us. (laughs) So we've we've got demons. We've got witches. And next is uh, the big man himself, right? Lucifer. Lucifer. Beelzebub. Mephisto. For a segment of Skeptic Sunday School, we're going to share with you some of the history, some of the development of the concept of Satan, and how did he come to occupy such a terrifying role in Christian theology. I guess it would be good to start off with the traditional idea, the Christian idea that we may have picked up mm-hmm. in church sure. as to where did this Satan come from? What was the origin of Satan? When you were growing up in church, Dave, yeah, how did they explain that to you? Where did Satan come from? Well, uh, you know, the Christian Reformed Church where I was raised is not, not real big on the angels and demons talk most of the time, but was given the, you know, the Genesis story where... Uh, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, was an angel who um, rose up against God, somehow defied God, and was cast down along with all of his minions into hell. So, so he's a, he's a corrupt angel. He's an angel who made a power grab. Yeah, led led a led a rebellion. That's actually not in Genesis. No. Um, it's and it never is says it in the, the Bible at all? It never says the talking snake is Satan. No, it doesn't. We, we it, confabulate it. By looking back on it, we just kind of mush it all together and saying, "Oh yeah, it's all that." But when you separate it out, if you're, you know, from Mars or something, reading the stories for the first time, right. there'd be no reason to think so, that the talking snake was the same as. Yeah, as it's not so much Satan that has has brought about original sin as it is just a an actual snake. I don't think the uh, the people who wrote the Genesis account even really had a concept of original sin the way we think about right. it. And it's so hard for somebody, who, even an atheist, who's been raised in a Christian tradition to break free of that kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But here, let me read the passage where we get that idea that you just talked about, Dave, okay. the, the heavenly rebellion theme. Yeah. This is in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, O sun of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly on the heights of Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version, but if I was reading from the King James Bible, mm-hmm. that first verse would have read, Oh, how you have fallen, Lucifer, son of dawn. 
Uh-huh. Now, doesn't Lucifer mean bringer or bearer of light? Uh, it's associated with the day, the the morning star. Right. Exactly. It's uh, it would be Venus. Linking that word Lucifer with Satan, because there is this character Satan in the Bible. Satan. Well, isn't that special? But Lucifer, this this word Lucifer was connected with it because Venus to the early Christian church was uh, associated with pagan worship. And so they made the connection to Satan. But actually, this verse right here in Isaiah, this heavenly rebellion, mm-hmm. is nothing to do with it at all. Tim Callahan, in his book, Secret Origins of the Bible, terrible, terrible title, very, very good book, hmm. highly recommended, points out that well, first of all, what is obvious from looking at the at the entire context of the verse here is that there's no heavenly being that's being targeted at all. This is the prophet railing against the king of Babylon and basically saying, uh. you think you're so tough, you think you're like one of these gods, you're going to be in Sheol, you're going to be in the underworld right. when you die, just the same as any of us. But actually, a lot of this imagery comes from, as Callahan points out, a myth from the Ugarit. Callahan writes, while this was traditionally seen as Satan's rebellion, an attempt to storm heaven, the elements of heaven in the verse are from a Ugaritic myth. The word for north in Hebrew is Zaphon, meaning Mount Zaphon, the mm. Ugaritic home of the gods, kind of like a Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus to the Greeks. Thus, the mount of the assembly is the mount upon which are assembled all the Canaanite gods, the gods of the Canaanite pantheon, Mm -hmm. which uh, if if you don't know, a lot of those gods in the Hebrew Bible that the Jews continually whore themselves after are actually Canaanite deities. Like Baal? Yes. There's good evidence to suggest that Yahweh worship was very closely tied in with the Canaanite pantheon. Well, and it's it's important to remember that for um, the Jews at this time, it, it this was not one god. This was the one god that they had chosen. Right, right. Very boy. There, exactly. There was plenty of other gods. Technically, they would be henotheists at this point. Anything before the Babylonian exile, perhaps even a little bit afterwards, mm-hmm. the Jews are not really monotheists, worship one god. They're henotheists. They believe in many gods, but they, they worship one exclusively as their own god. They've got their home team. Yeah. Why else would you need yeah. a count commandment saying don't worship any other gods before me? If yeah, right. Gods exactly. don't if exist. there are no other gods. Yeah. Right, right. This most high god, Callahan writes, is Elion, which could mean El Elion, possibly a title of Yahweh, or possibly a minor Canaanite deity. So really, this passage was not at all intended to talk about this character, Satan. The Satan that we see in the Hebrew Bible, sad to say, is a much less gruesome, much less interesting character. Hmm. Let me share with you one of the first instances of Satan in the Hebrew Bible, one that I think many of our listeners would be surprised to know uh, that this is actually a reference to Satan. This would be in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, Verse 23. This is the story of Balaam and his donkey. Mm. You guys know this story? Mm-hmm. Yeah, real jackass who talks. Yeah. So uh, paraphrase the story for me, if you will. Um, he's on the road somewhere. Balaam is, Balaam is on the road somewhere, and his, uh, his donkey starts talking to him. And wackiness ensues. I, I I don't remember the point of the story. Yeah, uh, Mr. Ed, or I, I remember hearing it as a kid and going, "Talking donkey, yeah. awesome." 
The reason why the donkey is talking is because the donkey sees what the passage says is an angel of the Lord. Here it is in Numbers 22, verse 22. God's anger was kindled because he, meaning Balaam, was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the road as his adversary. Now, that phrase there, as his adversary, adversary there is Satan. The Hebrew word is ha-satan, and it means an adversary. Or also it can be translated an accuser. Or slanderer or plotter. Mm-hmm. Hmm. The idea of a, a Satan is really any sort of, what, what was the phrase, any sort of obstruction thrown in yeah. your path. It translates the Greek term diabolos, or we would say diabolical, as, as being... Uh, adversary or literally something to block your path. Yeah. Meaning, mm-hmm. you know, with the implication being that it's not even a specific being, it's a generic type of angel that God uses. Right. God like is the using, angel of death. Yeah. Like uh, <clears throat> it's it's a type. Yeah. So to teach, you know, in that case to with the donkey guy that, that he's, that God is sending Satan to block him to perform a mission. So what Satan does is he's an agent in God's hands to block right. our human plans. But it's not mm-hmm. even Satan as a character. It's a it's, Satan, a yeah. obstacle. Right, right. Now, uh, so so here, uh, Satan is actually doing God's will, mm-hmm. or uh, it's just a a Satan. And uh, the whole stuff with Balaam's ass, uh, with, with Balaam's donkey talking is just that the donkey at first can see in the story I would recommend reading that passage in the King James as it is much, much more funny. And then in the, in the Job story, it's a similar type of function. Exactly. Yeah, in, in the Job, it's, it's not as I remember it. It's been a while since I've read Job. But I did read Job because it sounded awesome. Job is one of my favorite books of the Bible yeah. to this day. It's very worth reading. But you have this, this kind of Satan as lawyer. Uh, coming or to... Or gambling buddy, even. Yeah, really. Hey, like... God, he, he's able to wander in and out of God's presence. I mean, there's a lot of disturbing things in that one. He's able to wander in and out of God's mm-hmm. presence. Hey, God, the only reason Job uh, hasn't still worships you is because you haven't done... And so he essentially goads God into right. smiting a good person. Mm-hmm. So God, again, lets Satan run wild, but Satan is a tool. God is in command. There's no Well, he like... can't do anything he wants because he can't actually hurt Job. He yeah. can just murder his family and take here's, his property and everything Here's else. the passage in, in Job chapter 1, verse 6. On the day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along with them. Again, that's ha-Satan. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. And uh, this was explained in Elaine Pagel's book, The Origin of Satan, that this is actually kind of almost a little poetic reference because the word ha-satan is very close to the word for roam, roaming in Hebrew. So, uh, and in fact, it like may so it's a it's a pun. Almost. It may yeah, sort of. It may it may have even suggested something like um, like a Persian spy or some type of spy sent by the king to go and uh, examine how people were behaving. Right. Uh, suggesting this was kind of Satan's role in the heavenly court. He here uh, is to investigate uh, people's behavior and what he is – he's basically there not as the devil but as the devil's advocate. In a courtroom scenario, mm-hmm. he's the accuser arguing against God's people, uh, sometimes arguing against God's positions, which is really all literary setup then for God to explain his, you know, his right. version of things. Yeah. 
Satan's there just as a character in the story to get some idea across. He's a plot device. Yes. Now, in Job, Satan is more sinister than he is with the story of of Balaam Mm -hmm. and the donkey uh, because uh, Satan is given power to inflict death, plague, and everything else on Job, take away his possessions, everything like that. Um, but he's doing so at with God's permission, right. entirely in cooperation with God, not not as a foil to His plan. Now the role the role of Satan doesn't really change from that until after the Jews come back from exile. So this is towards the end of their history, as it's recorded in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, after they've gone into exile, the first temple has been destroyed. They're coming back. Uh, then we start seeing more passages where uh, Satan is still the accuser. He's still kind of fulfilling that role, but he's becoming more more of a diabolical figure. <laughs> one example is in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. The situation here is that many of the Israelites have returned from Babylon in exile. They're coming back to uh, to you know rebuild the temple, start up control of their lands, and the people who were never went into exile. They were the poor. They were the people who just stayed there. Really resent these exiled Israelites coming back and trying to to run everything, mm-hmm. and uh, and they're very critical of the high priest. And so this verse in Zechariah, the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and the Satan, again, accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So here Satan's playing the role of devil's advocate, but here we see that God and Satan aren't so buddy-buddy. Satan is kind of uh, in a opposition to God and trying to thwart his plans and really trying to stir social unrest amongst the Israelites, as Elaine Pagels in her book Origin of Satan talks about. And in fact, Pagels argues really convincingly to me that this was really the fuel for that aggressive Satan character, the the opposition, somebody who's in opposition to God's plans, the force of evil, really comes from the fact that Jews, after the exile, in the intertestament period, the time between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, Mm -hmm. had broken into many different factions. If you want to fast forward up to the time where the Greeks, where Alexander the Great had conquered that large region and now Greeks were in control of the area, Mm -hmm. you had, for example, Hellenizing Jews. Jews who were trying to adapt Greek culture thought, oh, you know, maybe maybe all that learning and philosophy and, you know, the Olympic Games isn't so bad, trying to imitate Greek culture. And, of course, a lot of their fellow countrymen living in a foreign-occupied country found them to be traitors and everything else like that. And in this time, Pagels ar- argues, this is where you start seeing the Satan figure come into play as these different sectarian groups start accusing other Jews of not being true Jews, Mm -hmm. Jews who are corrupt. Because think about it. Satan is the guy from God's own court. Right. He's he's not a foreign god. He's not a foreign enemy. He's 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 an underling of God. Yeah. yeah. I think her her whole thesis is that it's it's that whatever Satan is used for is a very intimate 
evil. It's something mm-hmm. that's not like this other totally antipode to God, but it's always the person who used to be like you who turns uh, away. And so you can use it to demonize very intimate enemies right. and say that this person, what happened to Dave? It's because Satan took him over and he's right. never no. If you were the Essenes at the Qumran community, which we talked about in an earlier episode, has mm-hmm. links to Jesus, it would be the high priests uh, who were not following traditional religion. Uh, they would be the ones that were being confused and controlled by Satan. Yeah, if you look at the Judas things. thing, uh, at first they said well, the explanation as to why Judas would turn Jesus in, it was because, you know, the, the explanation changes through the Gospels until you have he's possessed by Satan. Right, and, right. And so, uh, you know, it's an explanation for his very intimate crime against Jesus and that it must be Satan. Now, as far as this story of a heavenly fall and a Satan being one of the angels that led a rebellion, the first time you ever get mention of that is in a bunch of books that both Christians and Jews considered non-canonical. These were the, the pseudepigrapha. Like in the, the Book of Enoch, the Book of Enoch gives this story about these angels. Uh, they're referenced in Genesis who they come down to, to the earth and have sex with human women. Like extraterrestrials do now. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah see, some things never change. They want uh, women. And and, uh, and fearing Earth that God's are easy. God's not going to really appreciate that all all that much. They uh, they plan a rebellion, and we get other great characters like Azazel and other demons uh, in here. And and really, it's the early Christian writers. We know that they were aware of these books. The Book of Revelation and the Epistle of Jude both reference them. This is uh, Callahan mentions this in his book, Secret Origins of the Bible. Both of those books reference these pseudepigraphal texts, and uh, it's most likely that's where the tradition of Satan as the big boogeyman came from. Didn't they have in the Islamic tradition or some of the things that were incorporated into Islam that Satan was actually God's greatest lover and that God said that don't worship anybody but me? He's the head of the angels, and then he makes these human beings. Who are, who are they? And Satan refuses right. to bow down to worship the humans, and that's yeah, why he's cast too. out. Yeah. So it's, it's willfulness. And then you but can it's... tie it to the serpent. It gives a motive for yeah, why right. why would Satan try to corrupt mankind. So in that tradition, it's not just that he's a willful disobeyer of God, but it's because he loves God so much and he's obeying his original plan that he can't bring right. himself to worship the humans, which is kind of a different twist on right. why, why he— fell from grace yeah. or whatever. So uh, how about the uh, the popular image of the devil? Red guy, horns, goat's legs and all of that. I, I'm, I'm just guessing here, but I suspect there's a, a, a close tie to the Greek influence when you have figures like Pan because really the devil that we have now um, is a variation on the theme of, of the Greek god Pan. Hairy you know, legs, hooves. Hairy legs, hooves, the horns. I mean, he's he's a trickster god. He's He presents obstacles. That sounds That's, entirely plausible to me. I, I actually don't know any of that. Uh, my kind of knowledge as, as to the development of Satan kind mm-hmm. of leaves off right there yeah. in the early Christian era. And, sure. But, of course, people carried that on. And it, it develops throughout art as well. You know, right. one person uses that image and another person builds on it. Yeah, and, and they conflate and, a lot of different things like the Antichrist and uh, the, the the Revelation stuff with the Antichrist and his beastly looks. Whatever. Right. A lot of people confabulate. They put together Satan with the Antichrist and there's very little distinction made between those things. It kind of all gloms together. Yeah, and then right. you have this weird... Um, you have this figure of Hades, who in Greek is not malicious. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the afterlife is not 
damnation. It's not hell. Yeah. It's just where everyone goes and, and you slide around as, as wraiths and all Well, we that. don't have time to talk about it, but read Pagel's book. It's really interesting. She kind of addresses that and she makes the case that the evil component to Satan and not only that but to hell and the mm-hmm. afterlife is actually prompted by a theological shift in the view of God when God becomes a being of perfect good. Yeah. So it's well, not until this right. this good evil dichotomy really yeah, shows if, up. Yeah, if God is a being of perfect good, then evil needs an explanation, and then you start and... getting the evil under the the afterworld f- right. for evil people as opposed to good. And Batman it's, it's, needs his uh, Joker. We yeah. need to balance it. It's a very interesting story. It's well worth reading. Um, but really, the the main key point that I got from reading parts of Pagel's book and and other things is that Satan. The character has always been, at least in his demonized form, has been a way for people to critique movements similar to their own, to attack heretics in their own movement. Uh, Demons and the devil are quite literally ways of demonizing other people. So (laughs) one one to keep in mind, the devil is scary for some very human reasons. Hmm. Yeah, and you see this to this day where there's schisms in various churches and such. They they attribute it to, you know, it's not just a difference of opinion. It's because Satan twisted their brain, right. or they they turned away from God and turned to the devil. And, yeah. To some, mm-hmm. you know, especially the Pentecostal charismatic tradition, it's almost anything can be considered satanic. Catholic, you know, Roman Catholics, right. uh, other Protestants. So, for example, if we made a very convincing argument to anybody out there that the character of Satan has a mythological origin that can be traced. They might just as well respond to us by saying the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people he didn't exist. Like Kaiser Soze. And now we present a Halloween edition of Stranger Than Fiction. First off. Psychiatric examination ordered for student who assaulted teacher he believed to be a witch. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. We have um, Darren Nager, 20 years old, who is a student at the Taft Education Center, which is an alternative high school, um, assaulted his English teacher after she assigned The Crucible (laughs) by Arthur Miller. Police said that he poured a non-flammable liquid on the teacher while she was working at her desk, and he was carrying a large green barbecue lighter. He he said that um, she was a witch and that he was trying to purify her. Okay, so non-flammable liquid. So yeah. Um, so like water or pop. Okay. Now now clearly all evidence points to the fact that this child is disturbed. Right. Uh, or or does that suggest that this was just a prank, a stunt? Does the article make any sort of Well, it's uh it's unclear. Apparently it was the assignment to read and discuss the crucible that set him off. Um and I I've, I've seen this in high school students. So um uh the uh, detective working the case said the teacher had been lecturing about the play and talking about the Salem witch trials in class for a while before he assaulted her. Um, the teacher had told him the previous day that she didn't believe in witchcraft and that uh, the play is a metaphor for persecution and that sort of thing. So it seems entirely likely to me that this is just some kind of prank. But um, he he attacked her with the lighter. She stopped him. He ran outside to go smoke. 
And when she <laughs> went outside after him, uh, he came at her again and was was stopped by security. Um, but apparently, according to the t- detective, Darren Nager, the, the student, has said that he thought the teacher was a witch and he was trying to purify her. Well, so um, our heart goes out to all those alternative high school teachers out there. Yeah, absolutely. Deal with that. Um, also from the Stranger Than Fiction desk, this comes from the Stranger Than Fiction, um, oh, the horror, the horror desk. Um Cannibal cult mother who skinned son and made him eat his own flesh gets nine years in jail. Oh, dear Lord. Fantastic headline. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. And uh, uh, first impressions, a nine years is all you get for skinning your son and making him eat his own flesh. That that seems a little uh, lenient. Um, This is uh, from Czechoslovakia. uh, I'm sorry, from the Czech Republic. Uh, It's a woman and her sister who apparently tortured a couple of their children by doing things like stubbing out cigarettes on their bare skin, whipping them with belts, um, trying to drown them. They're also sexually abused and forced to cut themselves with knives. And then they were partially skinned and their flesh was fed to family members and to themselves. Uh, You know, Dave, this was supposed to be kind of a fun Halloween spirit. Yeah. this is not really getting my joy meter up. No, you're no, harshing it, my mellow. It's um, it, yeah. This is this is not really uh, a fun one. Um, but you know it happened, and uh, and it's ooky. I mean, think if the Adams family was real. This is kind of uh, the way they might behave. But these the sisters are part of the Grail movement, which is a a Christian offshoot. Now, according to the Grail movement's website, and I have no reason not hmm. to believe them. Um, the women actually involved with this case are part of a offshoot from the Grail movement, which is led by a man who was banned from the Grail movement in 1996. They're too extreme for the Grail movement. What What is the Grail movement? Um, you know, I, I didn't get a lot. Apparently, it's based on a book, um, Into the Light or something is the title of the book. And it's a Christian offshoot. It's about the um, the real teachings of Christ. Now, okay. how this leads to cannibalism... I guess ask PZ Myers, but um, there's a there's some kind of connection between uh, the uh, blood and body of Christ and cannibalism. So they they go even further than say Catholicism at taking that literally. Uh, yes, uh, transubstantiation of a cracker is not going to do it for that, them. Well, yeah, that could and and like I said, I don't actually. I, I couldn't actually find much material on the Grail movement. I'm I'm making that assumption. But what the uh, prosecutor here in the Czech Republic says is that their aim was to make the boys blindly serve their religious goals. And that about says it all about that. Yeah, well, uh, well that was a pick-me-up. Well, um, it gets scarier, though. It gets okay. much scarier. Okay, top that one. Uh, scariest thing yet. Mel Gibson pours millions into extremist Catholic sect. <laughs> Mel Gibson has poured another $15.2 million oh into his uh, private church, which it, it's called Catholic but is not recognized by the Catholic Church because they don't recognize the authority of the Pope or any of the uh, post-Vatican yeah, II anything stuff. Vatican II. They're, they're um, big fans of the Vatican I, yes. and they believe that the Vatican II was— uh, I, I believe they 
think was even influenced uh, under Satan. It's that demonization we were talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, did you know we have a local congregation of that do we, Catholic of uh, the uh, um, Holy Family Catholic Church? Yeah. Really? Yeah. The, uh, years ago, we have a we have a papal church here in Grand Rapids, uh, mm-hmm. the the Grand Rapids Basilica. To their credit. A lot of Catholics are are very ecumenical nowadays and are trying to embrace uh, other religious perspectives. And mm-hmm. the the basilica had invited some Buddhist monks, uh, Tibetan monks, if I recall, that were going to come and do some chanting and sure. talk about the plight of the Tibetan people. And this Catholic splinter group, mm-hmm. they filled the first few rows of pews with their supporters, Uh-oh. and as soon as the chanting began, they started praying, but really it was more like They're screaming right, at the top right. of their lungs, God, please forgive us for this abomination. Yes. And everything not, not unlike when uh, there was the uh, Hindu prayer at Senate. Well, the, the, the Catholics at the, uh, at the Basilica um, really handled it well oh, and, and uh, got them out of there, and, and, and the, the end of the story was a good one. But, yeah, that's how mm-hmm. hardcore these people are. Yeah, and um, Mel Gibson's church um, now has tax-free assets worth a total of $64 million. Yes, let's please not tax them because what would we use that money for? Uh, Mel Gibson is the sole contributor to this church. Um, it's a small congregation of about 70 members, 60 of which are actually his children. Um, <laughs> what? Oh, Mel Gibson. Oh, his his wife is just a baby factory. You didn't know this? I This oh, sounds yeah. suspicious to no, me. No, he has, he has um, tons and tons of children. Um, and in fact, the women... This isn't Fletcher Factor fiction? No, this, this is, is actually... I, I, I couldn't give you the exact number, but he is a uh, um, fertile uh, little anti-Semite. Way to go. Yeah. So Mel Gibson is putting even more money into his creepy-ass church. All right. I have a quick props and shit list. Sorry, no Halloween theme here. Yeah. Could could you read it in like a a um, Vincent Price voice? (laughs) They could both be construed to be scary or uh, happy in some sort of way. Sure. Um, A trick and a treat, as it were. Yes. Well, we'll start off with the treat then. Excellent. First off is a props to the evangelical youth of America. Wow. Yeah. If you that, could. That's scary enough right there. <laughs> We're giving props to evangelical youth. Okay. Well, here, here's my, uh, my reason. I was just looking at some Barna research that came out on voting preferences amongst uh, evangelical Christians. This would be the born-again Christian crowd. Oh, good old Barna. Yeah, and they were comparing the differences in candidate preference, correlating that with age. Mm-hmm. And while Senator McCain, amongst adults in their 60s... Or as McCain likes to call them, my grandchildren. 47% of born-again Christians in that age group favor Senator John McCain. Uh, Does that mean a, that 53 favor Obama? No, uh, oh. because there's actually a pretty wide margin there that's undecided. Oh, okay. Um, whereas the the youngest born-again voters, mm-hmm. so 20s and 30s evangelical Christians, Obama is actually the front-runner getting 51%. Well, And I share that as more than just to give uh, my support to Obama because, sorry, a few days before the election, can't help it. This is true. But also to say this is this is somewhat symbolic of 
the fact that even in evangelical Christianity in America, this strong grip that the Republican Party has had on evangelical Christians Mm -hmm. is finally loosening. And I think uh, actually secularists like ourselves, it's very easy and politically expedient for us to point out all these reactionary policies and attitudes coming from the religious right, as we like to call them, Mm -hmm. and evangelical Christians. I think in the upcoming years, and really it's overdue, we A lot of us need to start looking at how the evangelical movement in America is changing itself. Right. There are some major positive strides that they've made towards embracing better environmental policies, starting to focus on on more charitable help through you mm-hmm. know through government even to the poor and uh, And so I think you know that's one for us to be aware of e- evangelical Christianity is not a fixed thing. It can change, too. Right. And they're being pushed by these these culture wars as well. And uh, so I, I think it, it, it it's a good thing to pay attention to that, and they, and they deserve the props. It's a good sign that they're not blindly following the religious right mentality. And, uh, well, and that things can change. Right. This is – at some point, we can actually say that this isn't Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson's movement anymore. That's right. Now, it may – it may swing way back in the other direction eventually too, but this is a – it's a live entity. Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure change terrifies them uh, as much as anything. Well, but. and we know that as going to uh, – both of us went to Christian universities. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the stereotypical born-again believer is certainly present on today's campuses, Christian campuses. Oh, yeah. But they're not the only force and that deserves to be And they're not the loudest voice to. either. No, a lot so. of times they're not. And um, – as a quick shit list, I'm putting myself on the shit list. Well overdue. <laughs> oh, thanks, yeah. thanks. I, I was expecting you to wonder why oh, I, mean, I would put I, myself. Oh, yeah. On the no, shit no, no. List. Why? Why would you? Uh, why? Why? I don't get it. Um, because I have recently discovered that I have done something that I've criticized many of my opponents for doing, and in fact, I think a lot of other secularists. Uh, are going to be on the shit list with me. You know yourself and and know if this applies to you. Let me explain what I'm talking about. If you're like me and you're one of those very pro-church-state separationist guys, Mm -hmm. then you are probably fond of a particular group of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson being one of them. Mm, Absolutely. One of the best. Right. Now, there's a quote in circulation. Uh, Maybe you've heard it, Dave. Uh, that that is attributed to Thomas Jefferson. In fact, it was even in the Bill Maher movie, Religious. Oh. The quote is, Christianity is the most perverted system that ever shone on man. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I've used that quote in conversations before with people to try to establish, look, Thomas Jefferson was not a evangelical born-again Christian. Right. He was an Enlightenment deist. Now, I still hold to that and that and the bulk of the evidence suggests that. However, this particular quote is a misquote. It's inaccurate. Really? Yes. Check out positiveliberty.com. Hmm. A commentator there, John Rowe, points out that this quote has been treated as unconfirmed as as many quotes we have with the founding fathers right. are. Right. Um, but actually, he's found the source of the quote. Oh. It's a letter that Jefferson wrote to Joseph Priestley. For the guy from 90210? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Oh, that's Jason Priestley. 
a, a physician and actually a, a Unitarian minister. Really? Yes. I did not know mm-hmm. that. He, uh, he helped found the Unitarian Church in England and was hence um, thrown out. Hmm. Yep. Well, the, the full quote in context is this. Those who live by mystery and charlatanry fear you would render them useless by simplifying the Christian philosophy. Christian philosophy, the most sublime and benevolent but most perverted system that ever shone on man. So you can see in the full context, he doesn't mean that the philosophy is perverted. He means that people pervert Christian philosophy to Which their own is, ends. What do he say? Divine and uh, sublime and benevolent. Sublime and benevolent. Okay, so he's saying it's a very it's it's one of the best philosophies, and people have perverted it. He's yes. not saying that Christianity is perverted. No. And, uh, and you know what? I should have known this. I should have known because I've read enough about Jefferson to know that he was not anti-Christian. No. That uh, he he was anti-supernatural. Right. Uh, it's an anti-dogma. Yes. It'd be very hard to demonstrate that he believed that Jesus was any sort of divinity, uh, mm. the son of God, that sort of thing. Y- you know, so it, so it should have just made sense to me that there's something amiss about this quote. Sure. And yeah, so I think I deserve to be on the shit list because I've used that and several uh, other seculars as well because we see this happen on the other side all the time. Mm -hmm. There's a fair deal of these quotes that are uh, brought out by the religious right trying to make the claim that all our founding fathers were – Christians right. and that they wanted this to be a Christian it nation. It was just assumed yes. that it was a nation under God. And a lot of yep. those quotes have been shown to either be fraudulent, they're just made up, or to be taken out of context. Yep. And uh, and we criticize them for doing that, mm-hmm. and rightly so. And you know what? We have to be skeptical of our own movement too. We need to ask for references and backup. And, right. and so that was a that was kind of an eye opener for me that uh I make some of these mistakes too. So that's all for our uh Halloween spooktacular. Thanks for listening. You can find us on the web at www.doubtcast.org. Send us your comments, questions, challenges, other ideas for things you'd like to hear about on the show at doubtcast at gmail dot com. Thanks for listening. Have a great Halloween. And don't forget to go out and vote on November 4th, those of you listening in America. For episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Josh Dunnigan helped with recording. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission.